I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, so you guys are going to want to open your Bibles to Leviticus, because that's where we're going to be tonight. Leviticus is one of the books of the Bible that we often uh, don't know what to do with. I mean, it was easy to apply it if you were a priest working in the tabernacle in Old Testament times. But as a Christian today, a follower of Jesus Christ today, it's like, what am I supposed to do with this? By way of introduction or reminder, this is part of the Jesus in the Old Testament series, which has been an extensive series, uh, building a case of how to see types of Christ in the Old Testament, the theology behind looking for types, examples of types. And right now what we're doing is I thought, let me go to a book of the Bible that has a great amount of typology in it, Leviticus, but it's a book that a lot of people just, they find unrewarding, I think. Um, And one thing that might help you find it more rewarding is by seeing the typology in the book. So we're going to cover the first seven chapters today, and we're going to be looking specifically at the sacrifices that happen in the book of Leviticus. Let me, I'll give you some more details, but just a reminder, um, I know you're hovering in Leviticus chapter one, and that's where you should be, but Galatians 3.24 says this, It says, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And so we're not under the law in the same sense that the the, uh, Jewish people were under the law when it was given. It was given for a time and then it is no longer binding upon us. Okay, it was never really binding upon all people anyways. It was only to Israel. But even though I'm grafted in, I'm not bound under the law. So that that would be a biblical concept. So when the Old Testament priest, the Levitical priest, would open the book of Leviticus, he would actually see instructions for his job. It was like his job manual. Here's what you do. Here's when you do it. Here's how you do it. The application, though, to a Christian is going to be all about the foreshadowing. Or at least, not all, but largely it's going to be about the foreshadowing. How does this represent Christ? How did this picture Christ? How is this the guardian that brought me to Christ to show me faith? So um, I think the first thing I'll mention right off the bat is, since we're going to cover Leviticus 1 through 7, these are the sacrifice. It's going to talk about five different kinds of sacrifices. And uh, the most obvious piece of typology that we really shouldn't take for granted is that Jesus is the sacrifice. Now, I want you to, um, to imagine the impact of Leviticus and of the teaching here about sacrifices. Just imagine if it wasn't there at all. Imagine if Jesus shows up and there was no Old Testament law and there was no Levitical priesthood. And then John the Baptist sees Jesus and he turns and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Jews are like, the what of what? The the what of God? Who does what? See, that doesn't make any sense apart from the Levitical law. The very nature of Christ's sacrifice is taught to people through the template of of the sacrifices in Leviticus. And we take for granted how much detail there is here relating to Jesus. So the most obvious thing is just that. Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of not the people of Israel, not just this one guy with a sacrifice, but of the world. There's a worldwide atonement that's taking place. Um, so ideas like atonement, ideas like sacrifice, ideas like substitution, you know, this, this, this animal instead of me, you know, the clean for the unclean. That all this stuff comes from Leviticus. The life is in the blood, and the blood is for atonement, and the sprinkling, and all it's all in Leviticus. So, um, 
the rough outline of Leviticus is, if you just looked at the whole book, is like, here's stuff that happened at the tabernacle. That's like the basic topic of the book of Leviticus. It has other concepts in there as well, but that's the basic idea. And the first seven chapters detail five specific sacrifices. And you can, you can see them in order. And then at the end of chapter seven, it summarizes. So flip ahead to chapter seven. Let's look at the summary at the end of the, the, end of the section. Leviticus 7.37. After explaining all the sacrifices, it then summarizes. And it says, 737, this is the law of the burnt offering, that's one kind of offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering. Now, the ordination offering is only offered for the priests when they become ordained. So it's not a normal offering that happens regularly. So five of those are the regular ones, the burnt, the grain, the sin, the guilt, and the peace offering. We're going to go through those offerings today and how they have typological significance for Christians. So pretty interesting stuff. Let's start in Leviticus Leviticus chapter 1. And it begins the book giving us this intro. It says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And then it gets into all these different kinds of offerings and how they are to be done. Um, What it's going to do is it's going to name a type of offering. In this case, it'll start with a burnt offering in chapter 1. Then it's going to give what items or or things could be offered under the category burnt offering. Then it will get into um, maybe when it would be offered, on what occasion this would happen, or why. And then it will also get into the procedure. So once you bring your sheep or your bull or whatever, here's what the priest is going to do. He's going to, basically the priests were like butchers. I mean, they're, they're, they're like, not butchers like in the, in the pejorative sense, but like butchers like in the career sense. Like they're chopping up animals and they're se- separating them into the, the usable and unusable parts and things like that. They're doing this and the instructions are all in Leviticus. So let's talk about the birth, the birth. There's no birth offering. That's awkward. Burnt offering. <laughs> Let's talk about the burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1, starting in verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. That would be the tabernacle, right? That he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So the type of offering in chapter 1, and it's through the whole chapter, is the burnt offering. The entire chapter is about just the burnt offering. Um, It had to be a specific kind of creature. It had to be male. couldn't be female. It had to be without blemish. It could be a bull. It could be a sheep or a goat. Or if they were poor, they could even bring birds. But only if they were poor, if you keep reading through the chapter. Um, It had to have no blemish, no defects. And the idea here is that it's a substitution. You see, the offerer is blemished. The offerer is defective, right? But the animal is not. It's unblemished. It's without defect. Immediately, we're getting this idea of the perfect going out and being offered for the sake of the imperfect. And we have the substitutionary concept that's being taught here. First um, Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Jesus, he's the righteous suffering for the, un, from the un, for the unrighteous, but this has its roots in Leviticus, how the male without blemish is offered for those who do have blemishes, so to speak. It's symbolic. I mean, it's not like 
the un you know the the lamb that doesn't have any weird hair growths on it is really sinless it's just without blemish it's just something that re- it's representative that's the idea it actually gives new meaning to Ephesians 5:27 in fact a lot of your new testament has deeper meaning once you understand Leviticus and i'll i'll fully admit Leviticus is not fun to read i fully admit it but i also don't think the bible is written for your entertainment it was written for your good, but not for your entertainment. And if you've noticed this, the books in your life that are the best for you are not the ones that are the most entertaining. And the ones that are the most entertaining are not exactly the best for you. <laughs> it's just the way of, of reality. Leviticus, it's instructions to the Levitical priests, but it foreshadows Christ. And it makes many statements of the New Testament make a lot more sense. So Ephesians 5.27, speaking of Jesus and what he did for us, it says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And here we have Ephesians saying, hey, the without spot and wrinkle, that's representative of being holy and without blemish. So the offering of the burnt offering was without spot or wrinkle without any problems. It's representative of being offered holy and without blemish. It has to be a free will offering in Leviticus chapter one. Um, The burnt offering could not be forced upon you. It had to be something you chose to bring. The priests weren't going to come and take it from you. Now that you were, were you supposed to offer it? Yeah. There were times you were supposed to do it, but it had to be willfully offered. I choose to give this to God. That's the idea. Um, in John ten seventeen, I think this connects to Jesus. Because he says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I've received from my father. So Jesus is offered by free will. Now I think the burnt offering has like a double typology in it because the burnt offering is offered completely. There's nothing left over from it. It was all consumed. And the idea in that sense is it's something that's wholly devoted to God. It just belongs entirely to God. Now Christ's entire life was wholly devoted and entirely belonged to God. But then we get in Romans 12, verse 1, we get this idea that we are called to offer ourselves to God now, a living sacrifice. Jesus died and rose again that we might be then a living sacrifice. In a sense, a burnt offering is like a a person who's sold out for Christ. I'm living for Jesus Christ. My entire life belongs to Jesus. And I think the church needs to hear this. Because so often it's like, I feel like I've got my religion in its right place in my life. Wait, Wait a minute, right place? Whatever place in my life is, that doesn't belong to Jesus is a place in my life that doesn't belong in my life. <laughs> it's, I'm wholly belonging to the Lord. I'm fully his. Um, so the free will aspect is there. Um, the, the location is specified in Leviticus 1. It says that this offering had to happen in a specific place. It has to happen there at the door of the tabernacle. By that, it didn't mean the door of the actual structure where the tent was, but rather there was that wall, that tent, uh, the... the um, uh, cloth wall that went all the way around well that had one doorway and you had to bring the offering through that door in the original tabernacle there was only one door and it had to come through there and jesus of course he says that he is the door he says that he is the way and no one comes to the father except through him all these offerings have to come through the tabernacle i've I've a whole we already did a whole teaching on how the tabernacle represents christ and there's so much stuff there um it gives the reason it says to make atonement to make atonement, um, and the idea of atonement here is, uh, well, that's like a whole other Bible study, the Old Testament concept of atonement and all that, which I'm not teaching today. But that's the purpose of this offering, although it does seem like it's, it's not, specific sins aren't generally the thing that triggers the burnt offering. 
It's rather the idea of, of, of being connected to God, being in, offered, offering yourself to the Lord is kind of the concept. That'll make more sense as I talk about the other offerings. Um, one thing you'll notice about these offerings is something that you may have assumed is that the priest is the one who's going to kill, you know, you bring the animal and the priest kills it. But in every case, with all of the offerings, what we see in, like in verse 5, the person who kills or slays the offering is the person who's offering it. The priest is the one who handles it afterwards, right? Handles the blood and, and chops it up and does all the proper, proper things with it. But it says in verse 5, he shall kill the bull. It's going to be the offerer that has to do the killing. I think that's really interesting. And part of the reason is because it's for his sin. It, he's bringing it for his sin. He's offering it. So he's the one who slays it. Now, for many years, people have been debating who killed Jesus. Have you heard these debates? Who killed Jesus? And some, um, some people have attacked Jewish people by saying, oh, the Jews were Christ killers. And then others like actually read the Bible and they went, well, actually, I mean, he died at the hand of Romans. So it's the Romans. The Romans are the Christ killers. And then you read the Bible more carefully and you're like, well, gosh, I mean, you've got Judas, his own disciple betrays him. You've got the other disciples, they flee. Then you have the Jewish hands that, that, that take him and they parade him around and they abuse him and they deliver him to the Romans. So then you've got the Roman hands that take him and they're the ones that actually end up crucifying him. So who killed Jesus? Yes, the Jews, the Romans, one of his own disciples betraying him. Yes, they killed Jesus. Humanity killed Jesus, the Gentile and the Jew, the Jew and the non-Jew. They all worked together to kill Jesus. But here's the thing. In the Levitical system, the one who killed the offering, well, guess what? The offering was for that person. And I think while they had not intended it that way, that's how God intended it. I think God wanted for Jewish and Roman hands, for Jew and Gentile hands, to both be involved in the killing of the offering, the ultimate offering, the Lamb of God, because he was taking away their sin. Um, <clears throat> in connection with the killing, in Leviticus 1.4, we read this, that he's going to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So he lays his hand upon the head of it. And this happens a few times in the, in the book of Leviticus, the laying on of hands. Um, later on, there's rabbinic writings that describe this and they describe it as, this is just tradition, but you wouldn't just touch the animal. You'd like lean on the animal, like putting your weight on the animal. So the idea is you're, it's like a sense of transference that's going on there or identification. What's interesting too, though, is that in Matthew 26, verse 50, it says when, uh, when Jesus was betrayed by Judas, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And so I think about the ones who were involved in his death, also the ones who all had laid hands on him, really as he was being the offering for mankind's sins. So he was, he was uh, the offering for the world, I think is the picture there. Um, also in Leviticus 1.5, it says, Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar, that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So that's going to be the, uh, the bronze altar where the, where the actual um, the roasting is going to take place. So there's an altar there. There's an altar inside. That's the altar of incense. Then there's the, the actual final altar in the Holy of Holies. Those aren't involved yet. This is just an external. The burnt offering is an external event. It happens outside of the tabernacle or in the courtyard area. The burnt offering, again, was given completely. Um, in verse 13, we read that it was a pleasant aroma, a pleasing aroma. Some people paint an ugly picture of the temple 
and they 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 imagine that like the tabernacle was just soaking in blood all the time. There's blood everywhere, and, and I've even heard pastors speak very crudely about it, like it was a bloody religion, blood, blood, blood. And but when you read the actual details, it was all very controlled. The blood was used only in specific areas, and then it was just poured out in special locations. Even when they brought it in, they would just you know dip their finger and like sprinkle it. They would just sprinkle it or touch it to the to the horns of the altar. And there it would just have like a representative amount of it there. But generally speaking, there's going to be a pleasant aroma actually around this place because they're constantly cooking. That's the idea. The, the meat goes on the fire and you're smelling the smell of barbecue, so to speak. Um, so you can actually go pretty deep into symbolism here if you want. Um, I am going to try to stay somewhat conservative and not go too far overboard, in my opinion. But you can go deeper into symbolism. For instance, if... I'll give you an example of what, what is conjecture. This might be symbolic. I don't know. But if the, if the offering was birds, then they had a special procedure for the birds, for the burnt offering. They would take the birds and they would pluck the feathers of the bird off. Then they would put the feathers on the ash pile. And the, the bird was burned. It was part of the burnt offering, right? Fully consumed. But the feathers were not. They just sat there on the ashes. Now, you could say that <clears throat> birds, they fly in the heavens. And they're like a heavenly type creature. And we have uh, angelic beings that have wings and stuff like that. And so perhaps the plucking of the feathers is like Christ laying aside his glory. You know, he, he belongs to heaven, but he comes down to be amongst us. He is, he is fully offered to God. And yet there's the feathers, the things that, that, he, that allow him to fly, that, waiting for him there. So that after the offering, he's able to take them up again, so to speak. I mean, is that, is that what God intended? I don't know. This is conjecture, but this is part of what we can do if we're cautious about it and thoughtful as we look at these things. Um, if it was a bull, a goat, or a sheep, one of the procedures was that they would cleanse the actual inner organs. They would take them out and they'd wash them before they roasted them, before they put them on the fire. Now, I don't know. Maybe there's something there about Christ, how he was, he was clean internally and externally. You know, he was perfectly, perfectly moral in motive and in actions and in all things, unlike you or me or anybody else we've ever met. Okay, so there's just some possible symbolism. I do recommend looking through and kind of thinking, hey, maybe there's something here or there. You don't have to make it up, but you can look for it and find parallels. Um, then we have the grain offering in chapter 2. The grain offering is also called, in the King James Version, the meat offering. But that's just because back then the word meat would be used for bread. Not just, you know, carne. Right? Not just beef and that sort of thing. Um, so in the King James, it would be called the meat offering. Or um, in, I think the New King James calls it the meal offering. And I think ESV here calls it the grain offering. So Leviticus 2, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. Here's the requirements for the grain offering. Fine flour, he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. Notice this, all the frankincense is going to go, not just some. And the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion to the on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. Meaning that most holy, um, there's, there's holy offerings and most holy offerings. Uh, the holy offering, the people could eat it. The most holy offering, only the priests could eat that. And they had to eat it inside the tabernacle location. So this is actually a, a technical term, most holy offering. So this could be flour finely beaten, or it could be baked loaf or wafers, if you read on in the passage. Um, you could cook it on a griddle or on a pan. The important thing is, however you made your bread, is that it was fine, good quality flour. 
because again, it's the best. It's the best that's being offered as Christ was the best. Fine flour offered with oil, salt, and frankincense. So I think if we look at the elements of the grain offering, we see elements that relate to Christ. And I think that many of you are you're already ahead of me, right? You can predict what I'm going to share with you next. He was fine flour or high quality, just like the animals, high quality. Well, Jesus, he tells them in John, you know, don't labor for the bread which perishes, but labor for that bread which gives everlasting life, the best of the breads, so to speak. Um, John 6.51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he's saying, hey, the bread, that's me. These are sacrificial terms in John 6.51. He's going to give his body for the life of the world. His grain offering will be himself. He's, the burnt offering will be himself. <clears throat> All of the offerings will end up being Christ. Um, the bread had to be unleavened. Unleavened. You know, leaven or yeast, it's, it's that agent that causes the, the bread to rise and the dough to become more puffy. It makes for good bread, but symbolically, God did not want it involved in the process of the offerings and the altar. Some people say because yeast involves corruption. I mean, that's kind of what it is. It's, it's stuff that's decaying or whatever. It's somehow releasing gases and stuff. And while it makes my bread taste good, he doesn't want it representative in this offering. Um, leaven can represent sin and it can also represent pride in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting is no good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And it is the pride and the arrogant attitude they had towards sin in that church that was the leaven that was affecting them, changing their their attitude towards God. Um, Jesus, he was sinless. He had no leaven, so to speak, in him. He is the sinless one. So there's the unleavened bread. But also leaven is a representation of, of bread being bigger than bread really is. You know, you take a piece of bread and you and you ever make bread and you prove it and you go through one or two proving. I know because I watch baking shows, um, not because not because I make bread. I just like watch cooking shows. But um, but when you let it prove, it puffs up. Now, is there more bread? Not really. No, it's just puffed up. Now, that's fine for bread. But symbolically, I think it can represent pride. First Corinthians alludes to this when it says in first Corinthians eight one, it says knowledge puffs up. Right, but love edifies. And so knowledge makes me think more of myself than I should. Um, and that can definitely be the case. Little little side note, if you ever are wondering yourself, am I being proud? The answer is always yes. And that little tiny niggling thought in your head, that little, maybe I'm being proud. Yeah, you are. Absolutely. That's my rule for me. I just the second I think maybe this is pride, it's always pride, every single time. I've never I've never been like, no, no, I'm actually more humble than I thought. Like that's never happened. Um so So you couldn't offer leaven, but it also says you can't offer honey. And this really puzzled me for a while. Why was there no honey in the the, the grain offering? Why is it specifically ruled out? So honey, it turns out, as I study things I don't do, um, like bread, like making bread, it turns out honey, while it's not a leavening agent, it's a catalyst when you don't have leaven and all you have is the natural leaven that's already inside of bread. It's just not enough to make it rise though. Well, you can add honey and the leaven feeds on the honey and then it's a a catalyst for... um, for when you have not enough leaven. So he says, no leaven, no honey, probably because they have the same effect on the bread. Um, and so there are certain recipes that actually call for this stuff. You could, you could go Google them and you can make some of that bread and bring it because we can eat it. It's still good. It just doesn't fit in the offering. Um, so Christ, he's the sinless one. He has no sin in him and, he, and his humility. Talk about no pride. Talk about being flattened out. He comes and becomes low like one of us, Philippians uh, chapter two. It's also offered with oil. 
Now, what does oil represent in Scripture? The Holy Spirit. This is easy, right? So he's offered with oil, the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4 talks about this, oil representing the Spirit. Um, In fact, the term Christ, or in the Hebrew, Messiah, what does it mean? Anointed one. And the high priest, he gets oil covered all over him. The, The concept is that he is the one who, according to Scripture, he has the Spirit without measure. That's Jesus. So he is anointed. So he's without pride and without sin and of the finest quality and filled with the Holy Spirit, the oil, plus salt. Why was salt added? Salt was on all of these offerings. The salt, salt, salt was very important to include. Well, salt is related to grace. In fact, in Colossians 4, 6, it says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. A good reminder for us. To let our words be gracious, seasoned with salt. In this case, seasoned with salt is the same as gracious. That's what he's saying. It's becoming more flavorful, more kindness. Is there a way to say that in a better way, perhaps? Um, also, salt is the opposite of, of leaven. Leaven has this decay effect. Salt has this preserving effect. It's a preservative. So there could be relation there to Christ. And then it's also offered with incense. And the incense... Okay, when I brought the grain offering, I bring this whole grain offering, whether I baked it or it was just the flour, but I bring the same basic ingredients, however I prepared it. And only a handful of the flour and the oil, salt and all that, would just be tossed into the fire. But all of the frankincense would go. The rest of this, this is for the priests. They get to eat this. This is like their paycheck, so to speak. This is how they, how they make a living. But the frankincense is all burned up because it's going to make sure that this is a wonderfully a wonderful smelling offering. That's the idea. It would smell good as it goes on the fire. Well, frankincense shows up at the birth of Christ. We always read about the three kings. We three kings of Orient are. Okay, we don't know how many kings there were. The reason why we use the number three is because we know how many gifts there were. There was gold, there was frankincense, and there was myrrh. And they all relate to Jesus in really special ways. But the frankincense is offered here. Interestingly enough, when does frankincense show, show up? It shows up when Jesus is where? In what town? A little town of? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Anybody know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. He comes to the house of bread. He is to be the, the bread of life. And here he is offered with the frankincense, so to speak. I think that's pretty, pretty cool. Okay, then in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, And the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire. See, the grain offering is the only offering here that's referred to as a memorial. That's interesting, isn't it? A memorial? Why is it? like That means bringing it to memory. It'll be a memory offering. In Luke twenty two nineteen, Jesus, in enacting the new covenant and communion that we still partake of today on a regular basis, he says this. It says, And he took bread. Luke twenty two nineteen, And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, or in memorial of me. So here he is offering them the bread, saying, Do this in memory of me. And so I think there's a foreshadowing there, the grain offering being an offering where a portion of it is as a memorial. So it is a memorial for us today still. That's the grain offering. All right, chapter 3. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, to me, Leviticus is getting exciting. Believe it or not. Did you know that could happen? I don't know if you knew that could happen. <laughs> it is to me. P- the peace offering. The third offering we'll look at is the peace offering. That's chapter 3. So Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. 
And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering. There's that laying on of hands again. And kill it. The guy who's offering it kills it. That's consistent. At the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. So this blood's going to go against the sides of the altar. Now the peace offering is very similar to the burnt offering. In that the blood is poured against the altar of the burnt offering. So it's poured outside the, the tabernacle there. It has to be brought from an animal of the herd. That's similar. So not like the grain offering. Oh, I should add, by the way, the grain offering, it was not generally offered alone. Oftentimes for offerings, one person would bring two or three of these different offerings at one time. So the grain offering is usually with another offering. It's not usually by itself. But um, yeah, just a side note. Except here's how the peace, is, the peace offering is very different than the burn offering. The burn offering, except for the skin of the animal, that went to the priests. The burn offering was totally consumed. The peace offering was not totally consumed. So let's read about this in verse 14 of chapter 3. Then he shall offer from it, as, he's, uh, as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, that he shall remove with the kidneys, and the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All the fat is the Lord's, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. This didn't mean they couldn't have like a steak with some fat on it, but it was the fat that was part of the innards, the offal and the inedible parts of the animal. It was like, don't eat this. They could still like make soap out of it and render it down and do other things with it, but not to eat it, right? That was to be, as far as consuming it. No, no, it was meant to be consumed by the altar as an offering to God. That was the idea. What about the rest of the meat? There's still a lot of meat after you've taken all this stuff off. Well, they eat it. And this is the first offering eaten not just by the priest, but by the person as well. So the, the breast and the right thigh of the offering, they go to the priest. All the rest of the meat goes to the person bringing the offering. And they're required to eat it within a short period of time. So here's an offering where the priest partakes of it, the person offering partakes of it, and part of it is given to God. It's a peace offering, like fellowship, a fellowship offering. We're at peace. And so all parties are partaking of this thing. We're all united through an offering. That's the idea. The peace offering brought them all together. So with that in mind, realizing the peace offering is about an offering that brings us all into fellowship. Romans 5.1, it says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It brings us to God. We have peace with God. That's the idea of the peace offering. It's an offering of fellowship. Um, Galatians 3, verses 27 and 28 says this. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And just as the, the peace offering is bringing together the people with the priest, with the Lord, we're not only brought to God in peace, we're brought into each other's peace. I have peace with people because of Christ who I would not even have friendship with apart from Christ. <laughs> like, would we have anything uniting us? I don't know. I'm not saying like we would hate each other necessarily, but there would just be no connection. But knowing Jesus means being part of a family. You're part of the family of God. And some, some of us are, maybe we're disconnected from that family. We think of being part of the church as just attending on Sundays when it really means being part of the fellowship of the people. It's like more than that. It's not less than attendance. It's more than attendance. It's connection. It's, it's family. And we need it. In Ephesians 4, it talks about this bond of peace that we have. Ephesians 4.1, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you 
to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Christian love is part of this is knowing that we have been given, you know, Jesus is our peace offering and he's brought us peace with each other. And our goal is to maintain that peace, to maintain that fellowship, to partake of it. There's a unique thing about the peace offering. <clears throat> According to uh, Maimonides, which is, which is a famous rabbi of the past, a highly respected Jewish rabbi, not a, not a Christian, not, a, not, not following Messiah. But according to him, um, the peace offering is the one offering that when they would lay their hands on the offering, they would offer thanksgiving and praise and they would not offer uh, confession. So you would lay your hands and you would just offer a hymn of praise, a song of praise. You'd make statements of worship as you were offering the peace offering. So making it very different than the last two offerings we're going to cover, the sin and the guilt offering. Very different. So the peace offering is about fellowship. It's about worship and fellowship. And I think it connects, I'll give you one final New Testament passage I think connects to the peace offering. It's Colossians 3. Colossians 3 verse 15. I need to have a water offering real quick. Colossians 3.15 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. One body shared by all. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, I think he, he writing this knows that this is kind of what happens when they're doing the peace offering, even at the temple, as they lay hands on it and they're praising God and they're fellowshipping together. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As Christians, it's very important that you realize you are not just forgiven, you have peace. Peace with God, peace with each other, and that we seek to maintain that because there is a sweetness in life when we have peace. Okay, those are the nice offerings. Then we get to the more tough ones, which is the last two offerings, the sin offering and the guilt offering. So the sin offering is in chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through halfway through chapter 5. And let's read chapter 4, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments, notice that word unintentionally, um, about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Okay, this sin offering is about sin. The burnt offering, it had the word atonement in it, but except for the very beginning of chapter one, we haven't had a mention of sin yet. It's here in chapter four where sin is mentioned. Hey, if you sin, you're going to bring a sin offering. These last two offerings are about sin. They're about, about dealing with the sin issues. That's what they're about. Um, the, they're very occasional, and there's a lot of details. It's like if a priest does the sin, he brings this kind of offering. If a ruler of the people sins, he brings this kind of offering. If a normal person sins, they bring this kind of offering. If they're really poor, they can bring this other offering. In fact, generally speaking, it's animals all the way down, different animals for the sin offering. Um, but if you're really poor, you could actually bring a grain offering instead of an animal. Except the grain offering, if it's for a sin offering... You can't put any incense on it because it's not sweet. It's not nice. It's painful. It's hurtful. That's the idea of the sin offering. It's not this pleasant thing. So 
the sin offering and the next one, the trespass offering, they're for sin. And the first time the word forgiveness or forgiven comes up in Leviticus is in this discussion of the sin offering. It's in Leviticus 4.20. It says, Thus shall he do with the bull, as he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this, and the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. So it's about obtaining forgiveness. <clears throat> it's a mandatory offering. This is not a free will offering. This is like, you have to do this. You commit the sin, there has to be an offering for this sin. And for us, there must be an offering for our sins. Jesus says, this, it, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinners. It's not an optional thing. When Peter tells him, oh no, Lord, don't let it happen. He says, get behind me, Satan. Like, no, this has to happen. This offering must take place. There's no oil. There's no frankincense. Right? These, these things are nice. And they are never offered. Even if a grain offering is offered because of, a, because of poverty, then no oil, no frankincense, because the sin and the trespass offering have a different kind of taste to them, different kind of feel to them than that. It's a bitter thing. It's a dark thing. It's like a Garden of Gethsemane thing. It's like, a, it's like on the cross thing. It's not the sweetness of fellowship. It's something else. It's only for sins done in ignorance. Now, some people debate, and I'm not sure if I know the exact answers here, but I'll share it with you. Some people debate these sins done in ignorance. Does that mean, like, if you sinned and you knew that what you were doing was wrong and you did it anyways, that there was no offering for that. I don't think it's quite that clear. Um, because later on, it lists those sins as involving lying. Well, you don't lie without knowing it, generally speaking. And, and it seems to be you, 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 you lied knowing it in the context that it's described here. So some people instead, they say it's the difference of, of, of having a premeditated, high-handed sin versus like um, weakness of your flesh. You're just being a sinful human kind of sin. So, for instance, a high-handed sin. Can you think of in Scripture any examples of a high-handed sin? Something, someone, they knew exactly what they were doing, and they just rebelled against God and did it anyway? How about David and Bathsheba? There's no sin offering for you, David. Not for what you did with Bathsheba. The trespass, too. The trespass offering is not applied to those situations. Somebody commits murder on purpose, premeditated murder. No offering in the law for that. These are definitely high-handed. They're definitely not included as having offerings. So I'll come back to that in a minute, but I think that's important to know. So these are sins done in ignorance. And they're also group sins. The sin offering is the only offering that's presented for whole groups of people. On the Day of Atonement, they present a sin offering. It's for groups of people. I think the sin offering connects to sin nature. It's about our sin nature. It's about our inherent sin nature. The sin offering was offered for all the people, but the guilt or trespass offering, the last one we're going to cover next, it was never offered for all the people. It was only offered for individuals. We read about our sin nature in Romans 3, in Romans 7, right? I don't do what I want to do. Why am I doing sinful, wicked things? Well, because I just, I guess I'm sinful and wicked. Like that's something's, I'm, I have a sin nature issue. Interesting fact about the sin offering, Leviticus 6.27, it says, whatever touches its flesh, this offering, shall be holy. So there's an offering that says that when, here's the offering, whatever touches it becomes holy. Now, generally speaking, when you touch blood, you become unclean. But the sin offering, you touch that, you become holy. That's interesting, isn't it? And you find that there's this, this flip, that, that our blood, the fallen blood of mankind, has an uncleanness quality to it. But the blood of Christ, it cleanses. You touch this, you become clean. If the blood was brought... Inside the tabernacle, because sometimes with the sin offering, they'd bring it into the tabernacle. Sometimes they wouldn't. It depended on what it was for. But any time the blood goes into the tabernacle, now the rest of the meat has 
specific details about it. I'll, I'll, let's look in Leviticus 6.30. No sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. This, for instance, happened on the Day of Atonement. Specifically, um, the Day of Atonement, they would go into the actual temple and they put it either on the altar of incense or in the case of the Day of Atonement, actually go into the actual Holy of Holies and put it on the Ark of the Covenant. On that day, when that blood went in, that meat can't be eaten. And they would guess what they would do? It They would take it outside the camp and they'd burn it with fire. So the further in the blood goes, the further out the meat goes to be burned and destroyed. Leviticus 16.27, it says, And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. No, no part of them can be used. All going to be completely burned up. Hebrews 13, verses 11 and 12, it tells us what the symbolism is. It says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, the sin offering, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. It's almost like the worse the sin is, the further out you got to take the sacrifice. But the blood goes in, but the meat goes out. Christ, he's crucified outside the gate, outside Jerusalem. Yet when he dies, the veil is ripped, the offering is presented, and the way is made open. And this is all pictured, specific typology relating to the manner in which the sacrifices take place. What I'm saying is, the Bible legitimizes my adventure here in looking at the way the sacrifices look as how they relate to Christ because Hebrews was doing it 2,000 years ago. Okay, finally we have the last of the five offerings, the guilt or the trespass offering. Some translations will say guilt, some will say trespass. Um, So just recognize what translation you're in. This is... um, going to be kind of towards the end of chapter five and then it definitely throughout chapters six and then there's more details of all these offerings in leviticus seven and it, they pop up as they talk about the feast days they'll talk about the burnt and peace and all that it kind of goes throughout the book but here we are leviticus seven seven it says this the guilt offering is just like the sin offering there is one law for them the priest who makes atonement with it shall have it so if if the thing was not being brought into the holy place then the priest could eat of these things. So the guilt offering is like the sin offering. The two are clustered together. Whereas the other three, the burnt, the peace, and the grain, they're clustered together as being similar as well. And that's kind of, I think, a typical Jewish understanding of it. They would look at the three burnt, peace, um, and uh, grain as being like fellowship offerings, offerings in relationship with God. Whereas the sin and the trespass were offerings to get relationship with God. Because they deal with a broken relationship. Let's look at Leviticus 5 verse 14 where where we read about this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. So this is the first time there's an offering where there's a sense of restitution added. It's like you sinned, and not only is there an offering, but you got to like pay back what you didn't do. Maybe they were supposed to bring an offering, and they didn't. So they sinned about the holy things. So they not only bring the offering, but they bring more. It goes on to apply this to theft as well. 
you steal from someone, you restore it. You have to bring a, 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 a trespass offering or a guilt offering for your specific sin. Remember, it's not corporate. It's about your specific sin situation. So I bring a trespass offering. But if I like stole Melissa's like car, you know, then I have to like, which, which I am doing later today. I was thinking about that. It's on my mind. Um, I steal a car and then I have to give it back plus a fifth or more. Sometimes if you stole certain things, you give even more in the, in the, in the scriptures. But I have to give you even more. But I'd also have to have an offering to God because I sinned against you and him. So this is the only offering where it talks about restitution being made or paying back for something you did wrong and doing an offering. Interesting. What's the biggest difference between the sin and the guilt offerings? Because they're very similar. One of them fixes the sinner and the other one fixes the situation caused by sin. And to me, those are two different issues. See, I know when I sin, I need God to fix me, but I also know I caused a problem and I'm like, Lord, what about the problem I caused? So the trespass or guilt offering deals with the, the situation, not just the sinner. The guilt offering includes fixing the problem that sin caused. Um, Jesus, we read in Romans chapter 8, about how he not only forgives us of our sin, he fixes the situation caused by sin, which is worldwide, worldwide problem. Romans 8, look at our hope for God restoring, bringing bringing restitution to creation. Romans 8, 19, it says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies, that this, this restoration that's going to finally happen. We read about this in Revelation at the end of the book, the best part, <laughs> you know, about the restoration of all things. Don't lose sight of this. Jesus not only forgives, he's going to make it better. He not only forgives us corporately and individually, but he's going to deal with our sin issues. Of course, it's a process. Like the payment's been, been made, but the process of restoration is something we're now waiting for. So the sin offering was corporate or nature-related, and the trespass offering was individual and occasion-related, specific sin occasions. But again, there's a limit. It will not deal with high-handed sins. I know that's a phrase we don't use, high-handed. High-handed is like presumptuous sins. There's another word we don't use. Um, Willful, (laughs) willful sins. In fact, that's kind of what Hebrews is talking about when it says, he who sins willfully, there's no sacrifice for you. It's talking about the Old Testament law. There is no sacrifice for willful sins. This is why when David slept with Bathsheba, he, could, he loved the law, he loved God's word, and he knew it. And he knew there was no sacrifice for what he did. And so he writes Psalm 51, and he's heartbroken, and now you understand why. And he says in Psalm 51, in his recovery and his seeking and crying out to God, he says in Psalm 51, 16, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. I'm the king of Israel. I got plenty of bulls and goats, but there is no sacrifice for what I've done. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. So this is the thing he offers. He goes, I will just humbly repent and I will just say, God, you have to take care of my sin because I can't do it. So we see the failure of the law to deal with sins that every single human commits. 
That's what Hebrews talks about. It's the shortcoming of this law. It was never intended to cover all of your sins. It was meant to be like, here, here's a law for people who will be good. And now here's a savior because people aren't. And that's what, that's what points us to Christ. Don't take this stuff for granted. The sacrifice was to deal with sin and it sets the stage for Jesus. These sacrifices in Leviticus, they give us the meaning of Christ. Without them, with the book of Leviticus that I've heard people say, we can improve the Bible if we just tore out the book of Leviticus. Of course, they're non-believers who say that, generally speaking. Most of them, well, probably all of them. Um, But turn to Isaiah 52, and let's look at this beautiful messianic passage. Now that you have all this sacrifice content in your head, you're thinking about the burn offering and the peace offering and the guilt offering, and you're thinking of all these things. You're thinking about how blood could cleanse how it would normally make you unclean, but in the, in the context of a pure sacrifice, it could actually make you clean. Look at Isaiah 52 and see the sacrificial language in this beautiful prophecy of Messiah, of what Jesus would do. Isaiah 52, 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Now, if you didn't have Leviticus and Exodus, you wouldn't know what sprinkle many nations even means. You see, when they inaugurated this law, this Levitical law, they sprinkled the nation of Israel with the blood of a a sacrifice to consecrate the nation. They never sprinkled many nations. Jesus, he sprinkles many nations. In other words, he offers blood, sacrifice to atone for the sins of the whole world here in Isaiah 52. As you read on, I'll skip to verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Look at this and tell me if you can catch, I'll, I'll, I'll see if you catch it, something I taught you today that's right here. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. They will, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Did anybody catch a phrase in there that connects to the specific sacrifices in Leviticus? I'll read it again. We have... We have, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead of my notes here. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. That is a guilt offering. That is one of the five offerings we talked about, isn't it? The fifth one is the guilt offering for the specific sins of individuals and their impact in the world. He becomes a guilt offering. In the Hebrew, you can actually search it. It really is the same phrase for guilt offering that's used uh, in Leviticus Isaiah is speaking about how the Messiah will come and he will be the human guilt offering who is offered for the people to make us righteous because he'll bear our iniquities, it says in verse 11. Well, Leviticus, back to Leviticus chapter 10, verse 17. I'll read this to you. It speaks of the high priest. I'm not going to get into a whole bunch of the high priest stuff. Well, not all of it in Leviticus. So um, I'll skip ahead here. But Leviticus 10, 17, it says about the high priest that they were supposed to eat One of the reasons why they would eat of the offerings of the sanctuary was so that they may, quote, bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. You see, they would get the sin and the guilt offerings. Here's where they confess their sins on these animals. 
like as if their sin is being transferred to the animal. That's the symbolism. And the priest partakes of it because it's like he's got to bear the sin. Because Jesus, he bore the sin of many. He has, according to Isaiah 53, he has the priestly and the sacrifice position. They're all symbolism of him. I think it's just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, at the end of Isaiah 53, it says in verse 12, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. There is one time in the Bible where a guilt offering is presented for a whole group of people. Remember, it's only ever presented for one person, never groups. Except in Isaiah 53, where the Messiah, the future guilt offering, is presented for all the people. He bore the sins of many. He is the one guilt offering that can do that. Okay, a couple more things. Um, in closing, well, closing-ish. I don't know how much I got here. <laughs> um, there's commonalities among the offerings. Um, most of them involve a death, and it's like a life for a life kind of thing. Jesus, his life is eternal. He gives us eternal life. He's the elevated version of that. Um, always the person offering kills the animal. And so we see, when we see who kills Jesus, what we're seeing is not who we should go pick on. We're seeing who Jesus died for. Jews and Gentiles alike. He died for the whole world. That's the idea. The priest, his job is to present the offering, not to kill it, but to present it to the Lord. Well, Jesus, he takes the position of the offering and the tabernacle and the priest. He does all those jobs. And so he presents the offering. We, we are the ones who kill him, so to speak. It always happens at the tabernacle. Um... It has to happen there, which represents Christ, the tabernacle. All these offerings take place in that same location, except for when, 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 the, when the offering's got to go all the way in to the presence of God. Well, that's when it has to be taken outside the camp and destroyed. And that's where Christ died. And again, they're insufficient. That's an important feature of the Levitical law. It didn't cover all the sins. None of them are, are, are forgiven ultimately by the Levitical law. They need something better. And that's the point of this law. And that's what David's crying about in Psalm 51. They were offered for two different general things. Two of the offerings were offered to gain communion with God. That's which two? To get communion with God, to get right with God. Be the sin offering and the guilt offering. Those are about getting, getting right with God. I've, there's a sin between me and God. Well, those two offerings deal with sin, the sin and guilt offering. The other three are about being in communion with God. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering. So we have the, the, the sin and the trespass. They deal with my sin individually, our sin corporately, and its impact in the world. Um, then the burnt grain and peace offerings. Well, the peace offering, Jesus is our peace. The grain offering, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Do this in remembrance of me. And you'd burn a memorial portion of the grain offering. And it would give us fellowship with not only God, but with each other. And then we have <clears throat> the burnt offering. And we're to offer as well, just like Jesus offered himself wholly to God. You're to offer yourself wholly to God. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Not to be conformed to this world, but to be living fully and completely for God. Not to just be a doctrinal Christian. I have the doctrines of Christianity, right? But to be a follower of Jesus Christ in all that I do. Now, another little tidbit I'll add. In the order these offerings were given, it was always consistent. If there was a sin offering or a trespass offering, these were always offered before the other fellowship-related offerings, the burnt, the peace, and the grain. First, you deal with the sin and the trespass. Then you can have the other ones. So when you read through Leviticus, sometimes they're brought together as a group. 
it's always the, the sin offerings first, um, not the burnt or the grain or the peace. Now, last I'll say is this. Um, none of these offerings are actually happening today. You know that? None of them are happening today. In Israel, there is no temple. And since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, they have ceased. And there's been no significantly significant Jewish group even trying to do these offerings. So what do the Orthodox Jews do? Someone says, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I followed the Orthodox Jewish, you know, scriptures. And you're like, yeah, but you don't do it. I mean, like you have the whole book of Leviticus and you apply it as much as I do, which is not. Like you have no Levitical priesthood. You have no offerings. So the rabbinical Jews do other things. When the Day of Atonement comes, they do good, they do good works and they offer prayers and they offer offerings and they're trying to present good works instead of sacrifices. So that modern day Judaism is, 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 would be unrecognizable to ancient Jews. The other option is that you have Christ who is the sin and the trespass and the grain and the peace and the burnt offering who is the fulfillment of these things. It kind of breaks my heart when I I realize that a lot of modern Jews, what they have is a shadow of a shadow. What they have now is a shadow of, of the actual Old Testament law and the following of those things instead of what, what messianic people have, which is the fulfillment of those things. Christ came and he's the fulfillment. And when you realize that contrast, it hopefully makes your heart kind of break for the Jewish people. You're like, man, I just want you guys to know your Messiah. Yeah, please push me aside and come teach us, teach us these things better than I do. I'm perfectly happy to have you do that. But he is, he's the fulfillment. And instead you have like, like a wispy, stripped down version of even Judaism. It's not what was there. Instead, we have the fulfillment in Christ. Um, He is our peace, you know? All right. So that's the first seven chapters of Leviticus. I hope that that became interesting to you all of a sudden, if it wasn't already. And um, hopefully you see the symbolism there. There's more there and you can dig in and Find that stuff on your own and perhaps theorize and ponder things and search it out yourself. And that's kind of the goal of the series is to not give you every picture of Christ, but to stir up an appreciation and a knowledge of this sort of thing so you can find it on your own. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, uh, we just want to lift up um, around the world the, those who are holding to the Old Testament, those who hold to the Tanakh, yet... They don't really do it. Um, there's really no actual obedience to many of the things that are written there because it's just not even possible right now. We pray, Lord, that they would see that Jesus Christ has come and he is the fulfillment and that God has not left them without a sacrifice. He's, he stopped them because the sacrifice has been made. It's been accomplished that Christ, he offered himself once and for all. We pray, Lord, that they would there be more and more Jewish people coming to Messiah coming to put their uh, trust in their Messiah. And we ask, Lord, that we would have more and more eyes to see the goodness of Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament and how you have written the tapestry of the story of the person of uh, the Son of God throughout the pages of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.